As you dive into this teaching from High Point Church, we pray that it will help you grow in your faith as you believe in, belong to, and become more like Jesus. If these messages bless you, would you consider giving back in support of this ministry? You can give and learn more about High Point at www.highpoint.church. Evan Roberts, he grew up in a Christian home in Wales. And so he was known ever since he was a little kid for carrying his Bible with him. And so he would take it wherever he went. Even when he was 13 years old and he became a coal miner, he used to take it to work. There was a spark that hit a page, and it happened to be the passage in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, which is where Solomon prays for revival. And so he decided to pray for revival. And so this young boy began to pray and pray and pray for revival. He prayed for 13 years. It culminated in a service at his home church, and the pastor was preaching. It was actually a prayer service. He was calling people to pray, and the pastor prayed at the end, and he just said it like this. He said, he said Lord, bend us. And you know what that means. That's the idea that God would have his way in us, and he was praying, Lord, have your way in us. And so this 26-year-old, he gets out of his chair, he walks all the way to the front of the prayer service, he kneels down, and he just puts his arms up and he just shouts, Lord, bend me. And that started a revival in his own heart. And he couldn't stop talking about it. And so he would go from place to place, church to church, he started right there in his home church at a prayer gathering with 17 people. And he's just like, man, God's reviving my heart and he's doing this and he's moving and his word says this. He went from town to town, 50s gathered, hundreds gathered, thousands gathered. It was a spark. Some of the meetings, they lasted till four in the morning. This gave rise to the Welsh revival of 1904 and 1905. And so newspapers recorded that in six months, over 100,000 people came to Christ. Is that amazing? R revival, yeah, praise the Lord. The battle cry that he and the other leaders who were involved in this revival, the battle cry became Lord, save the church. Lord, bend the church, save the world. That's what I want to talk to you about. Because I believe that God is still in the business of revival. Do you believe me? But, but it doesn't start out there. It, it starts in here. So whatever you're going through, whatever you're experiencing, whatever pain, whatever difficulty, whatever tragedy, whatever, we've got to set it aside for a moment. And we've got to ask God to revive our hearts. And he can start a fire in you that can burn in amongst the people around you and your family members, your friends, in our church, in our community. That's the hope for our nation. So open your Bibles. Second Kings chapter 22. We're continuing in our series entitled Unsung Heroes. If you're visiting us online, we're so thankful to have you with us. 
We've been walking through the Old Testament, identifying people who have oftentimes been overlooked. And so this is a king. His name is Josiah, 2 Kings chapter 22. And I'm calling him the relentless revivalist because if you don't know him yet, you're going to know him by the end of the time and you're going to fall in love with this guy just like I have. I guarantee it. I promise you will. And he teaches us a formula. And so I want to put it up on the screen and I want to go through the formula first and then show it to you in the pages of scripture. So it's a formula for personal revival. And so it starts with a heart for God. And so that's the first component, and we're going to see in a moment, right in the second verse of chapter 22, that's what he had. And then it's, it begins with a passion for worship. What we just experienced right here. Was that not awesome? Sarah led us this morning? Come on now, praise the Lord. His presence is here. You felt his presence. And so interestingly, the, the, the temple needed to be rebuilt. God's house was in disarray. That's what we're going to see. And then, and then the love for God's word. You're not going to believe what they lost. I mean, it's, it's infathomable. You can't believe it. And, and then it's radical repentance. And Josiah is going to model that for us. And then, so this, the first four parts, heart for God, passion for worship, love for God's word, radical repentance, that's chapter 22. And then chapter 23, we're going to breeze through it. It's renewed conviction. And so that's the equation. That's the multiplier, chapter 23. It's what you're going to do. And, and, and that's personal revival. So I know the first thing, let me diffuse it by this. Do not send me an email and say, can't reduce revival to a formula. I know. I know you can't because the spirit of God's got to move. And, and so, but I'm just telling you, those are the components that I see. And if you see another one, like, let me know. But, but, but these things with God's spirit, man, they can do something that we can't. Lord, bend us. Lord, bend me. I ask that in Jesus' name, amen. Look with me at verse 22, or verse 1 of chapter 22. First component, heart for God. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. So he's just a little kid. How come? Well, because his dad was murdered. And so he wasn't a good guy. His dad, he was an evil king. And so that's how he got to the throne at such a young age. It mentions at the end of verse 1, his mother. But look at verse 2. That's what I want you to focus on. It says, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and he walked in the way of David, his father. And he did not turn aside to the right or the left. So he had a heart for God, even though his dad didn't. His grandfather didn't. I mean, he was he was didn't wasn't had the uh, he didn't wasn't in a family where it was modeled by his parents or by his his dad and his grandfather to, to follow in God's footsteps. But but he did anyways. And so maybe that's you. Maybe you're in a position like that where nobody's ever modeled this for me. I, I know. I remember what that felt like. It, it's not an excuse. We, we can do what's right, and we can walk with the Lord. Now, when it mentions David, it says it's his father. That's actually his great, 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 great,
And so let me put this on the, on the screen so that we can understand the timing of this. So David was the king after, anybody remember? Saul. So it's Saul when the kingdom was united. It's David and then David's son. Anybody know who he is? Solomon. And so those were the three kings under the united kingdom. David was a man who walked, uh, he's described as he had a heart for God. And so you can see the kingdom was divided. And so now we have 39 other kings as the kingdom is divided. Only eight of them are good king. That's how bad things got. And so you can see the good ones I've got in green here. And, and then I just put Josiah, did you see him? He, I just put great. He was the last of the good king. And so that's the context, that's where we're at. 350 years, kingdoms divided. He reigned for 31 years. The people before him were evil, but he had a heart for God and he wanted to see revival happen. It started with him. And so I'm gonna give you several quotes as I'm praying for revival in our hearts, in my own heart this morning. Let me give you this quote. It's from Andrew Murray, he says, True revival means nothing less than a revolution. Casting out the spirit of worldliness and selfishness and making God and his love triumph in the heart and life. That's revival. It starts with a desire to get rid of some things. Selfishness and pride. And I'm going to make God and his love for me. I'm going to, that's the most important. That's, that's what it means to walk in his way. And so second component of our formula for revival. I gotta have a heart for God. And then the second thing, it's gotta have a passion for worship. And so what's interesting is we see that here. If you look with me at verse three, it says in the 18th year of King Josiah. So now he's, if you do the math, he's like 26 or 27 years old. So he's got the kingdom He's pulling all the strings now. He's in control. When he was eight years old, he had a team around him. He had some, he had some uh, people who were helping make the decisions for him. And so he wasn't running the king as a nine or 10-year-old. They put some people around him. Permission for a joke? Permission for a political joke? I'm sensing I shouldn't do this. But sometimes if you're too young, you need to see people around you to help you make decisions. And then if you're too old, I'm just gonna end it there. But in all seriousness, like he had control, man. And he had the control that he needed and he was making some changes. And, and so what he did was he says to the priest, he's like, go collect some money. And he's like, I want to bring the temple. I want to restore the temple. See, the temple was the temple that Solomon built when the kingdom was united. And, and now he's like, I want to restore it. So he gets the priest to raise some money. And then if you see at the end of verse 5, it says he got the workmen together and gave him oversight of the house of the Lord and let the house of the Lord repair the house. So it was in disarray. It was in shambles. And the house of the Lord represented the presence of the Lord. And so people were not worshiping the Lord. And, and so they were what? They were, had all kinds of pagan deities, and, and that's how bad it became. And so that's what was happening. 
is if the house of the Lord became a pagan establishment where the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was not being followed. So the house of the Lord is a place of worship. We experienced it this morning, did we not? God's presence is here. We have the opportunity to worship him for who he is and what he's done. Like we can have revival right here in these seats. Have there any been revivals? Yeah, there's been revivals over time. I shared one with you about the Welsh revival. There's been revivals in our country. There's been the first Great Awakening, the first and the second. Just last year, there was a revival in Kentucky. Maybe you've heard about this. Small Christian university. Ashbury University and Ashbury Revival is what it was called. And, and there was a worship service at the college, a small little college, and, and people didn't leave after the worship service was done. And people just continued to stay there, and they continued to worship and sing and, and to pray. And that went on for two weeks. There was over 50,000 people that visited during that period as it didn't stop 24-7. And they just kept worshiping, and God's spirit was there. Revival was happening. Over 130 other college campuses were affected as people were visiting there, and they spread the revival all around the country, even our own down the street here in Wheaton, and Wheaton College was affected. If you read the history of this little school, this Ashbury University, they've had eight such revivals in their history times where people just got together and they prayed and they asked the Lord and, and they worshiped him in spirit and in truth. Revival happens through prayer. Amen? That's how it gets started. And so let me give you this quote. I love it because it's from R.A. Torrey. And R.A. Torrey, he's got his, some roots here in Chicago as he was very instrumental at Moody Bible Institute in the early days. And he was actually the pastor of Moody Church. He's from out east. And he led revivals all over the globe, over 15 million people. And he says this, every true revival from that day to this has had its earthly origin in prayer. So let's pray for revival in our own hearts. Let's pray for revival in our church. You were given a communion cup when you came in. And so that's for the end. And so even now, to pray that God would use this time to revive our hearts. And so that's the application. I'm trying to get God's word to get us ready for personal revival so that we can take communion and reflect upon the cross and the sacrifice that Jesus made. And so I just let you in on where we're headed. But I believe that's going to be the best part. But I want to use God's word to prepare us for worship. Amen? And so the next component is this. It's a love for God's word. And so I don't know. I mean, how, how many times have you lost something that's valuable to you? I mean, I, I lose my keys every day. Anybody with me? And now we have something to help us. We've got the little Apple tag that I put on my keys, put on my bike, put on my backpack. The only problem is I lose my phone and I can't get to all these Apple tags. So that's the problem. Somebody needs to solve that for me. But what happens when you find your keys and you're like, oh, yes, and, and you're just like, yeah, yes, I found it, or something valuable to you. It's like, yeah, I give you, oh, man, how could I misplace it? And you're not going to believe what they lost. So they're restoring the temple, 
And all of a sudden, I mean, I can't even believe this. Look with me at verse eight. The high priest comes in and he tells Josiah, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Now, just even saying that, that shouldn't sound so radical. Like God's book is in the house. I mean, if you look in a seat cover in front of you, there's a bunch of Bibles here, but, but they lost it. That, that's how bad it had gotten. Like they lost the book of the law, which represents the first five books that we're holding in our hand from the Old Testament. That's what's referred to as the Pentateuch. That's what Moses had written. That recorded, it was the, almost like the foundational documents for the, the Jewish people, the people of God, as it tracked what happened, how the world began, and how God chose a people, and how he delivered the people. And it would be like us losing the Declaration of Independence and Independence and the Constitution. I mean, what would our country be? Well, that, that's what happened. And so they lost the book of the law. And so they were operating without direction from God. Let, let me make it clear. Like, I wouldn't know and have an accurate picture of who God is if it wasn't for what's written in this book. I would make God out of my own image. I would have my own vision of who God is. But everything I do needs to be filtered through the book. And so they lost it. So they weren't following after God. Jeremiah 15, 16, if I had a tattoo, this would be the verse. It's simply this, that it talks about the book of the law. And Jeremiah 15, 16 says, your truth, I found it and I ate it and it became a joy and a delight to my heart. Like, like that's what this book is to us. And this book, along with God's spirit, feeds the revival in our hearts for what God wants us to to do, like we wouldn't know. Did a little research for us this morning, and maybe you've heard the name Bill Bright. He was the guy who, he started Campus Crusade. And so this is like 70s, 80s, and, and so he started this movement across college campuses, and maybe your parents were affected by it, maybe you were affected by it. That, that what, this is a movement, and he did this little diagram, and I wanna show it to you now. And so he called this diagram the, the fact or truth train. And so it was just a simple diagram to show that, that the engine, the locomotive, needs to be led by, by truth and by fact. And what comes next is faith, and then the caboose is feeling. Because if the feeling is, is the engine, then it can take you on a different track. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like if we follow our feelings and not the truth, then what can happen? And we go in all kinds of different directions. Hey, if I'm honest, I haven't been feeling that great this week. Like my voice, I have had a cough, I can't get rid of it. I got up this morning, I didn't feel like coming to church. I didn't want to come to church. And Jody kicked me and said, get to church. <laughs> I'm joking. But, but our feelings, I'm glad I came, our feelings are not the motive. They, don't they shouldn't be the driving engine. And so that's what he was getting at. So, so where are we at today? Well, I'll tell you, some people say we're in a postmodern culture. I would say we're in a post-truth culture, <laughs> understand? That, that what? That, that fact and truth, it, it's here. 
And, and feeling is my story, my truth. How many times is it my truth? Like it's driving everything. And I gotta be honest, I think truth and fact, it's like feeling, 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 maybe some faith, it's all the way here. Like we're not being driven by absolute truth. Our culture is all about my experience and, and my truth and you can't argue with it. And my truth replaces absolute truth. When this should be the filter. Speaking truth this morning? And so we've got to be careful. That's why Charles Spurgeon, he said it best. Charles Spurgeon said, if we want revival, we must revive our reverence for the word of God. When your words came, I ate them, and they became a joy and a delight to my heart. And again, revival, it's fueled by God's word. It's, it's ignited through prayer. And so I love what R.A. Torrey says. He goes on to say this. He says, the prayer that is born of meditation upon the word of God is the prayer that soars upward most easily to God's listening ear. And so what he means is, he's like, you gotta, he's like, pray God's word back to him. It's been something that I've shared here that we've modeled that we wanna pray God's word back to him. And that way we don't lose focus and, and we're praying what God wants, not what we want. Been praying through Ephesians this week. And so this morning, I, I just knelt down. I prayed Ephesians chapter four for me, for our church. Like, like that's how you get God's attention. Pray, pray back his word. Allow that to lead and to guide. So back to our formula. So it's a heart for God. That's what Josiah modeled for us. It was a passion for worship. He was restored the temple. It was a love for God's word. Now, how, how did they lose it? Well, they did, and he regained it and put it in its forthright place. And then next, it's plus radical repentance. And so this is probably the component that I think that I believe personal revival is a mirage in the church and in our own individual lives because of this one component, radical repentance. So what did Josiah do when, when they found the book? I mean, the guy comes up in verse 11, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he, he found the book, he read it. What does it say? He tore his clothes. That that's a picture of repentance. And in the Old Testament, that's what they did. They just ripped their clothes. It was a picture of radical repentance. And so repentance is to change one's mind. That's what it literally means in its original language. It's to agree with God. And so why is revival a mirage? Because we're not truly repenting. So sometimes we live our sin more than we love our Savior. And so I know that to be true because it's true of me. And we fool ourselves into thinking that's okay. And we kind of get to the edge and we cross the line and Josiah was about, he tore his clothes when he found the book. I remember when we first started the church, and um, it's funny now, when you're doing church in the same place for over 20 years, you can talk about a lot of people in the past and, and a lot of stories, and you've seen different faces. And all good, but I remember this one guy came over to my house. It was a Saturday morning. 
And he was a well-known um, guy in the area. He was a college football player locally here. And him and his wife were coming to the church. He was in business at the time. He had just gotten out of jail. So he was just put in for the weekend. He was, that's what was going on. He was doing some carousing, and that's what it led to. And so he's sitting in, my, um, in our kitchen. Jody's over on, in the other area. She's kind of overhearing this. The kids are out playing. And then he starts telling me about what's going on. And he had gotten into a relationship at work with a woman and had a child. Got into another relationship with a woman. And so his marriage was in a wreck, in disarray. He, he was doing some things he shouldn't. And so he's telling me all this stuff and he even cried. And, and so I shared my heart with him, cut to the chase. So we're walking out the door. And again, Jody's kind of overhearing some of this. And and, I, and I, 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 I'm, he's a big guy, and, and so he's filmed the doorway. And, and I just kind of put my arm on his shoulder, and I gave him one of the biggest challenges I think I've ever given someone. And then so I closed the door. I mean, I was nice, but I, like Jody said, well, why, why did you do that? And I, 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 I didn't believe him. I didn't believe he wanted to change. I, di I didn't think it was sincere. And Jody's like, well, what, what do you mean, why? And, and the reason that I know that it wasn't sincere is because I know myself. Are you hearing me? And I, I could tell. I, I just knew there wasn't really a desire in our heart for God. I think he loved his sin more than he loved his Savior. I think the honest truth is that it can be true of you, it can be true of me. And I wish I wasn't right, but it didn't work out, and, and things didn't go good. So how do you know if somebody truly repents? How can you know? Well, here's five fruits. We're going to go through these quickly. We've taught on these before, but these are things that we need to apply to ourselves first before we apply to others. And the first one is godly sorrow over sin. 2 Corinthians 7 says, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief, what does it do? It produces death. So that's the difference between being sorry you've been caught or being truly sorry for your sin. Second thing, fruits of radical repentance is genuine confession of sin. Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes him will obtain mercy. And, and, and again, that's what we're going to do today. Confess to agree with God. It's the secret sauce to personal revival is that I'm going to agree with God that what I'm doing is not bad. What I'm doing is wrong. And the Bible says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and true to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And third, we're talking about radical repentance, sincere hatred for sin. So it's like, I, I don't want any part of that anymore. And so look at what Ezekiel says. You shall loathe yourselves for all the evils that you have committed. And then two more, fruits of repentance. Desire to turn from sin. And so this is the story in John chapter 8 where Jesus confronts those who confronted the woman that they pulled out of the bed and caught in adultery. And do you remember the story in John chapter 8 and the religious rulers are all there and they're ready to stone her? And Jesus says, and he looks at them, he says, whoever's without sin, you go ahead and cast the first stone. And what they do, they, they drop the rock. And then he looked at the girl and he says, neither do I condemn you. Go forth now and sin no more. He wasn't 
willing to embrace that what she was doing was right. He was correcting the wrong, and he told her to live a holy life. Jesus does get us. He does. He gets us. But he gets us enough that he knows he wants to forgive us. He wants to sanctify us. He wants to cleanse us. Amen? He, he does. And, and, and so fifth, it's a willingness to make amends for sin. And so this is the story of Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19 where he's ripping all these people off and, and next thing you know, he gets convicted of this and desire to make things right and he says, I'm gonna pay back fourfold. And so these are the fruits of radical repentance. And so again, we're gonna be able to practice these today is that we're gonna take communion together that, that, that this is what it looks like. So again, I think that repentance is the key that unlocks the door for true change in my life and in yours. And so look at this quote for a moment if we want to experience revival. It's from Henry Blackaby, and he just went to be with the Lord, great author and pastor. He says, when a holy God draws near in true revival, people come under terrible conviction of sin. And the outstanding feature of spiritual awakening has been the profound consciousness of the presence and holiness of God. So it's how pure and holy God is, how big he is, and how small I am. And the closer you get to Jesus, to his presence as you worship him, the more you see that the work that he wants to do in your life. And so let's look at this next component. It's the multiplier effect. And so this is renewed conviction. This is, you know, the first four are from chapter 22. And then this is like, he's going after it. And, and so this is the action. This is, the, this is what he does in response. So I'm gonna call the worship team up to get us ready for our response to this message. But let's have a little fun first. I, I think. 2 Corinthians, or excuse me, 2 Kings 23, this is what he is, right here. This is what he looks like. This is Josiah. Josiah's like this, man. He's like Braveheart. He's a combination of Braveheart. How about this guy? This is what he is. He's the Terminator. And let's give him a sense of humor. How about, uh, you know, remember him? And so, so he's not only what? He's like Braveheart. He's like the Terminator. He's, he's like Iron Man. You say, what, what do you mean? It, it, he is. I mean, get ready. It's, it's amazing what he does in chapter 23. In the heading of my Bible, it says Josiah's reforms. And so he goes after it. Like, like he, he takes things into his own hands and he gets rid of this stuff. Look with me. We're going to go through it quickly. In the first verse, chapter th uh, verse 3 says, And the king stood by the pillar and he made a covenant before the Lord. So he made a covenant, he made a commitment to walk after the Lord, to keep his commands and his testimonies. And, and, and what happened is, is all the people joined in the covenant. So everybody's like, I'm in. We're all in. And then so if you don't believe me about how radical he was, look at what he does next. In verse four, he brings out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal. So the house of the Lord, the church was filled with all these pagan worship symbols. And they had the Asherah. The Asherah was, uh, this was the goddess of fertility, the false goddess, and the people were worshiping her. 
And what did he do? He took all this stuff out and he burned it outside of Jerusalem in the field. And then look at verse five. He deposed the priest. These were the ones that were leading the people astray. And he's just like, he, he just cleaned house, man. He drained the swamp. He's like, you're gone. And, and then if it didn't get any worse, he took the Asher from the house of the Lord. These were the poles. These were the poles that were celebrating these goddesses of infertility that the people were calling out to. And he, he burned them and he beat them to dust. <laughs> Look, he spread them over the graves. I mean, this is unbelievable. This is what the people were worshiping. And so what are you willing to rip out? What are you willing to, to burn? What are you willing to beat to dust? Maybe it's a behavior. Maybe it's an attitude. Like, like, like revival, it, it gets rid of it. And, and if it can't get any worse, look at verse 7. It says he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes. Now you get an idea of what was really going on in the temple. Prostitution. In verse 8, he defiled the high places. He broke down the high places. These were the places where the people would gather and that you would look, and they had these hills, and, and they, the people would go up there because they thought they would be closer to their pagan god. And he's just like, hey, man, get rid of all that. And just like we need to get rid of some things and clean some house in our own hearts and soul. And then he said in verse 10, if you don't think it could get any worse, he says that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering. So they were having child sacrifices. And say it isn't so. And then lastly, he restored the Passover. He said, keep the Passover to the Lord our God. And so the end of this chapter, starting in verse 21, they restored the Passover. And the Passover was restored as it was a remembrance of what God had done to deliver the people from Egypt. And that what? That to save the firstborn. And they would put the blood over the doorposts. And the evil spirit would pass over God's spirit would pass over that what that would protect them. Why blood? Well, because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. And so let's take a look at this last quote. A.W. Tozer says, our most pressing obligations is to do all in our power to obtain a revival that will result in a reformed, revitalized, and purified church. That's what we're going after. And each generation of Christians is the seed of the next. And degenerate seed is sure to produce a degenerate harvest. I wish I could say that it got better forever for Josiah. You can see if you read on that it didn't. That his reform, it lasted about 13 years. And, and then they went back to the old way. So that's why this is important, this revival that we need to spark. And so here's the formula. You can take a look at it. And again, I don't want to reduce it to a formula, but I, I believe that, that these same components are the things that, that can cause true revival now. And so in a moment, we're going to take communion together. You're going to do it individually. So pull out the cup for a moment. And I don't want you to open it up yet, but again, we're going to have some time for worship. And so Sarah's going to lead us and our team's going to lead us and this is a time of self-examination. And so let me kind of set it up. The bread is representative of the body that was broken for you. 
The cup is representative of the blood that was shed on the cross for your forgiveness of sins. And so which part of this formula, which part do you need to focus on? And so we don't want to rush this time. The Bible says that we're to examine ourselves. But as you hold the elements, and in a moment, I know these are kind of awkward. You've got to get the bread, and you've got to get the cup. And, and as you're holding these things in your hand, I, I want you to think about this for a moment. And I want to just go over this really quickly. These are the four points from Evan Roberts. This is the wealth revival. And so these are the, these, this is the message he preached. And, and I believe that it's the same message that we just saw from, from this couple chapters. Is first, as you hold these elements, put away any unconfessed sin. And so we've got to confess things to the Lord before you take these elements to make that confession. And then this is the important one. He said you must put away any doubtful habit. So this is where real self-examination, maybe there's something that you're, not, you're doing that's not quite wrong or you don't think it's wrong or it's on the edge, but it's wrong for you. And it's causing you to, to lead yourself astray and others and any doubtful habit, anything that, man, I don't think this is healthy for me. Just confess that before the Lord. And then you must obey the Holy Spirit promptly. And so just obey God's Spirit. And then lastly, you must confess Christ publicly. And so these are the things that as you hold these elements, which of these truths do you need to consider? And then take the element and begin to worship with us. We're going to sing a song that's one of my favorites in hopes that God's going to refine our hearts. So, Father, I pray for this time now as we enter into a time of examination that you would refine us. Father, bend us. Father, break us. Father, bend your church. May it start with me, I pray in Jesus' name.